you guys are familiar with the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. But sometimes covers are so bad, <laughs> it's like you don't have a choice. So I have a couple of covers I found this week. You can put the first one on the screen. Uh, this, is, this one says, anybody can be cool, but awesome takes practice. Now this one, I don't know if it's just the cover or maybe just the title. Like it's so bad. Like if that's your title, then of course I'm going to probably not buy it. Uh, here's another one. It says, eating people is wrong. Now, this is a real book. It's a, I looked it up. I forget. It's like about like wisdom and like how to be kind and how to be nice. And it's like that. But that's like, I wouldn't. Why? I just not going to. I'm not going to read it. Okay. Now, also with these, you also have sometimes where people have classics that they put different book covers on, like some classic books, and they just horribly botch what the book should be. Here's here's one for example. Uh, this one is The Hobbit. And I don't know what's more scary, Frodo or the other guy. Like, it's just like, what is this? I would not, the 50th anniversary edition, no less. Like, this is what you're going to do uh, to that book. Here, here's another one, uh, Dracula. This looks like something my elementary age children would draw. And uh, like, well, why? I mean, it looks like a bad comic book. Or, or here's one last one. This one's really more of a nightmare. Alice in Wonderland. Uh, she's like a normal like Photoshop girl with like this this like rabbit with a teacup, and it's just like when you look at this stuff, it's like I don't know. Maybe it is appropriate to sometimes judge a book by its cover when you have stuff like that. And I share that this morning because we are continuing our series misquoted. We are looking at verses, passages in the Bible that seem to maybe say one thing on the surface, but if you read it in context, it might be saying something different than you might think. Last week we looked at Jeremiah 29:11, and this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. The question is, what is this verse actually saying? What it sounds like, uh, and even if you're not familiar, maybe familiar with this reference, this is kind of like a maybe rallying cry that people like to often say in our culture today. They'll, they'll, pick, out, they'll pick out this verse, uh, and it sounds you know, like you can do whatever you want. And so there's really a couple of things. What it sounds like is this. Never judge anyone for anything. And so sometimes I understand it. Maybe they think Christians are being hypocritical, and they say don't judge, although I think sometimes people just want to do what they want, and they don't want anyone to say anything. And so it sounds like on its own, this verse, this sentence, don't judge anybody because that's wrong. And there's a bonus that if you don't judge anyone, you also won't be judged. So like you can really do whatever you want and say whatever you want and act however you want because as long as you're not judging someone else, well then they should not also judge you. And so it's kind of like you're a free pass to do whatever you want. The question is, is this what Jesus is actually saying? Now, I said this last week, we'll say it every week in this series. We need to remember when it comes to the scriptures, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we need to remember that all scripture was written in a specific context, speaking to specific people with specific needs. Specific context, specific people, specific needs. It is not how we sometimes view it as like a textbook where you go to find answers. Now, yes, there's answers that we can learn and apply, but because it was written to specific people in a culture much different than ours, uh, the best way to understand or describe the, the scripture, I would say is this way, is that it is wisdom or meditation literature, that we try to understand the context, the surrounding of what was going on uh, to the people that it was written to, and then apply it to our lives, knowing we're in a different place, we're a different people, in a completely different different time period, but what is the wisdom that we can learn from that? And so what often is, again, normally we, we, we can kind of come to the Bible, we think it's like bullet points. Here's this for all times and all places, and, and do this, and, and then what happens is, again, we take them out of our context, we just read one verse, 
and then we think it might be saying something it doesn't. So, for example, this verse is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7, where Jesus is literally giving a sermon, and as with any speech, if you take one sentence without its context, it might sound like it's saying like something else, like it wasn't intended. Like, for example, did you know that the Bible actually says in Psalm 14, there is no God? Like, it, it actually says that. But of course, if you read at least the whole verse, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? So you, you've got to understand what is going on. And so the context for this verse is the Sermon of the Mount. It's five, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's likely a shorter summary of what Jesus taught to uh, this group uh, of people. And essentially what the Sermon on the Mount is about is about what, is, what does it actually look like to practically love God and love others. And Jesus sets the bar for righteousness or holiness or holy living really, really high. Uh, he talks about anger and lust and divorce and revenge and loving your enemies and generosity. The Lord's prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount, anxiety and more. And one of the things that Jesus gets at in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not just about external morality, that you and I can do a lot of good things that might even look good on the surface, but if our heart is far from God, if our motivations are off, then we're actually missing it. And so the question for us as we look at this, morning, this verse this morning is this, is it always wrong to judge? Is Jesus saying here that it is always wrong to judge? Or in context, is there a little bit more to the story? Is it always wrong to judge? And so we'll be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. If not, there's a black one around you, page 860. If you do not own one, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Again, is it always wrong to judge? Jesus is kind of, there is sections here. And so Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 starts a different section on judgment. And here's what it says, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Jesus says this. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Now, it's worth noting that Jesus is moving here in his Sermon on the Mount from personal temptations to interpersonal or relation, relational temptations. So it's no longer like internal motivations, but how we're actually externally relating to other people. And so he starts by talking about how we judge others. And what he says here is that the manner in which we judge others, really, it's kind of like a question, right? Would you want that same standard applied to you? Would you want that same standard applied to you? I have a couple of other really paraphrases or translations to, get, to kind of get us at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. The message, you'll be on the screen. It's kind of like a modern paraphrase. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, put it this way. Uh, don't, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment, right? Would you want other people to judge you the way you are judging others, or the Amplified Bible, not to be confusing, the Amplified Bible is kind of like a translation with a commentary like mixed in. Whenever you translate something from another language, you know, you can only pick one word at a time. And so they include like these brackets to try to give more understanding of what's going on. And so the brackets are not the Bible, but they're trying to give you some better understanding. The Amplified Bible puts it this way in Matthew 7, 1, verse 2. It says, do not judge and criticize and condemn others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteous superiority as though assuming the office of judge so that you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are sinful and unrepentant, so will you be judged. And in accordance with your standard of measure used to pass out judgment, judgment will be measured to you. 
In other words, Jesus here is communicating that our condemnation of others should not, be, should not be our goal. Like our default should not try to be judge others and condemn others because we wouldn't want other people to do that to us. We would want other people to give us grace and to give us mercy and to speak with us with love. And nor, of course, nor would we want other people to do that. We, don't, we also don't want God to do that to us, right? What we want is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. That's what we want. In fact, one Bible commentator puts it this way on these two verses. He says the context, and really all of Matthew 7, makes it clear that the thing here condemned is that disposition to look unfavorably on the character and actions of others, which leads invariably to the pronouncing of rash, unjust, and unlovely judgments upon them. This is what Jesus is cautioning us to avoid. And so then he goes on and gives a practical example. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. He says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, or the speck, as some translations you might be familiar with, but don't notice the beam of wood or the plank in your own eye? Verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there is a beam of wood in your own eye. Really, the problem that Jesus is addressing here is when we judge other people for an issue that we excuse in ourselves. We judge other people for an issue we excuse in ourselves, which is even easier to do when we have a disposition to be cynical or critical of other people. Right? For example, a way, one way to be hypocritical of this is like maybe you're a follower of Jesus and so you're trying to honor God and consume things that are honorable to him and you're talking with someone and they tell you about a show or a movie or some content that they consume and you're like, maybe you don't say anything but you're like, I can't, I mean, they can't, they, don't they know they're not supposed to watch that? Meanwhile, you've got your own private stuff that you're viewing that no one else knows about that you excuse in yourself. And so you're judging and condemning other people for issues that you are actually dealing with yourself. You're just not public about it. Or maybe, you know, with your kids, right? Our kids are, imitate us. They do what we do. And so maybe your kid says a certain way or acts a certain thing or does a certain thing that you often do. And so you get really mad at your kid and you punish your kid and you kind of like lose your temper with your kid when at the same time, it's the same type of behavior that you do all the time. And again, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with trying to be corrective and helpful, but the problem is when we excuse it in ourselves and then we get mad at other people for doing the exact same thing. Right? If we have our own issues, or particularly the similar issue that we are judging somebody else for, how can we ignore our own faults while condemning other people? That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, to be fair, I don't think we often mean to do this. Like, I, I really don't think we're often trying to be hypocritical. But the reason we can be hypo- hypocritical is it's helpful to remember this, that we judge others based on their actions and ourselves based on our intent. So part of our problem in judging people, maybe even hypocritically, is that we judge others based on what they actually do, but then ourselves, we know our motivations, we know why, we know, and so we judge ourselves based on our intent. So like, for example, if someone cuts you off in traffic, what happens? You get angry, you get mad, sometimes the birds start flying, like it's just, it's not a pretty sight, right? How could they do that? Why didn't they see me? They're such a jerk. If you cut someone off in traffic, what happens? Oh, well, I'm running late. Oh, I've had a bad day. Oh, I just want to go home. Oh, I actually didn't see them there. And then they start honking at you, and then now you're mad at them because, like, don't they know I didn't mean to actually do that, right? We judge them on their actions and us on our intent, 
right? Or maybe at work, you have someone who consistently drops the ball or doesn't email you back or doesn't get the project done. And you're like, man, they're, they're overpaid. They shouldn't be here. They don't try. They don't even care. I don't like them. They're terrible. What are they doing, right? But you have, it happens to you. Let's say you drop the ball, right? Well, my boss is expecting too much or maybe I've got this stuff I'm dealing with at home or like it was an honest mistake, right? And so we're, we don't understand why people are so angry with us because again, we judge other people based on their actions and ourselves based on our intent. And so I think even some of this hypocritical stuff is not even that we're trying it to be this way, but that it's so easy to forget that their, that their intent, we judge them on their actual actions. And so when we do that, it makes it even easier for verse five to happen. Then Jesus says this, he says, hypocrite, First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that you should examine yourself first and your actions and your motivations. You should be honest about your shortcomings. But then, and check this out, this is important. Jesus doesn't say you should then never judge or he doesn't say you should then never evaluate others, which is often the assumed point when we just read Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, all on its own. Right? The problem here is not actually judging. The problem is pridefully viewing yourself as better than when you're not. That's the actual problem. Right? But for those, as Jesus is saying here, who are honest, who are maybe grieved, who are humbled by your own actions, by your own shortcomings, by the things that you do, then if, you're, if you recognize your own faults, then you actually can help remove the splinter or the speck in someone else's eye. Jesus is not saying never do it. He's saying be, be honest about where you are as you're trying to help them. He's, not saying, he's also not saying that you must be perfect before approaching someone else but rather your reason or your motivation or for evaluating or judging other people's should be humble and should be loving. In other words, I think the wisdom that Jesus is trying to get us, that, trying to say that we can learn from this passage is this, is that the issue is not that we judge, but rather our motivation for doing so. The issue is not that we judge, but really why? Again, if this is wisdom literature, then we should be wise and we should try to understand, okay, what does it look like to actually practically play this out in my own life? He doesn't say never judge because judging is terrible. What he says is be, be honest about yourself and don't have a posture of, hip, of, of condemnation towards other people when you are confronting or when you are talking to them. And again, again, because the Bible is wisdom literature, we also need to read it in its whole. And there's actually a lot of places, even in the New Testament, that talk about judging or evaluating others. So for example, I'll do these quick. Uh, Galatians chapter six, uh, Paul writes this. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, real quick side note, when Paul says spiritual here, he's not saying it like in our modern sense, like spiritual, but not religious. Uh, for Paul, he's saying those who are uh, faithful followers of Jesus, that are spiritually mature followers of Jesus, you should actually restore people with a gentle spirit if you see a fault. Or in other words, you should with love speak into various situations and to do so is actually a good thing. 
To do so is actually a loving thing because then you can help someone carry their burden, that you can walk alongside people who would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm struggling in this area, that you can be someone who walks with them. In fact, here's the reality, and you might have experienced this in your own life, judging well is actually hard, and it's easier to just not do it at all. Like, it's easier to avoid the conversation. It's easier to have someone that you deeply care about not bring something up that you know is harming them because you don't want to hurt the relationship or you don't want to think that them to think that you're condemning them or judging them, right? It can, speaking into situations can be really difficult. And yet Paul here seems to say sometimes judging them with love and humility is actually the way to help carry their burden so that they are not walking in this alone. Even Jesus himself talks about judgment. In John chapter 7, uh, Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders. Basically what had happened was earlier, he healed somebody on the Sabbath, which they considered to be work. Someone who, who was paralyzed from birth, they couldn't do anything. And so he heals this man on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are like, no, that's work. You're not supposed to do any type of work. You could have healed them on any other day. And so they're really upset. And then Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, I performed one work and you are all amazed. Jesus answered, this is why Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Now, I know you're thinking, what does circumcision have to do with judgment? Here's what's happening here. Jesus, again, he had healed a man, what they would say unlawfully on the Sabbath, who couldn't walk. And so some of these religious leaders are angry because this is work. Jesus should have waited one more day. He could have healed them any day. It's like he, he did it on purpose. Like, why would Jesus do that? Now, it's helpful to know that there was custom uh, to circumcise a male boy on the eighth day of his, birth, of his life. And so at, when a baby boy turned eight days old, you would circumcise him. This was a really big deal for the, for the Jews. It was God's covenant. They were his chosen people. And so when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, what did they do? They still circumcised the baby boy because keeping the covenant was kind of like a greater law than the Sabbath. And so technically circumcision is counted as work, but this is the more greater thing to actually do that. And so Jesus here is saying, if if the breaking the Sabbath ritual is acceptable in that case, how much more is it acceptable for healing a man's entire body who hasn't been able to do really anything with his life? And so then he says this in verse 24, Jesus says this, stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. He doesn't say never judge. He says, judge rightly, right? Consider why something is being done and speak to that. Now the Sabbath was, and it is important for rest and for trusting in the Lord and not doing all these things. And especially in an ancient culture where there's no bank accounts, where you're living off the land, like taking a day off of work was a really big deal to say that you trust the Lord. But what Jesus is saying here is that loving, and in his case, healing is actually the greatest good. Why? Because Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? To love God and to love people. What is more loving than to heal a man who has been begging on the, on basically on the side of the road for his entire life? The problem is not that the Pharisees are judging or making a judgment on what happens, is that their motivations and their understandings are not good, right? They're just trying to find a way to trap Jesus than really help someone. And so what you see when you read scriptures as a whole, you see this, that judgment that is humble and loving is good. Judgment that is actually humble and actually loving is actually a good thing. 
Right, so here's what I want to do. I just want to give a couple like really quick real examples, right? Like how does this practically look like for us to take the wisdom of not judging people hypocritically, but with love and care? What does it actually look like to apply this in our life? So let's say, for example, um, you are a follower of Jesus and you have a friend who's also a follower of Jesus. And you both have said, hey, we want to honor God with our lives. Right, and so let's say you have a self-proclaimed brother and sister in Christ who would agree uh, that you want that they want to honor people and honor them sexually and not take advantage of one another. And let's say that they have a porn addiction or they're involved sexually with someone in a non-Christ-honoring way. What should you do? So again, for me, for the wisdom applied here, here, here's what I think this might look like. What it would not look like is only those who have never looked at porn or who have never sinned sexually speaking to the situation, because that would be none of us. Everyone is broken. Everyone has sinned. It is not that you can never have had any issues on your own. What it would look like is admitting your own weaknesses and struggles in that particular area, talking about how you too fall short and striving, but say, I see this happening, and I want to bring this up out of love and concern for you. It's not a how dare you. It's not that if you really love Jesus, you'll stop. It's, hey, I love Jesus. You love Jesus. I don't think that this is what God would have for you. Right? Or let's say you have a friend who's mistreating their spouse. Right? It's never, you, only people that can ever speak to that situation have never said anything mean to their spouse or have ever gone behind their back or have ever lied. It's, it's not anyone who's only ever been perfect with their spouse because that is none of us. I think the wisdom that would apply here is to say, hey, I get it. I've been there, but here's what I've seen, and I'm concerned because I don't think this is good for you or your spouse. Right? It's not someone who's never done these things, but it's with humility saying, here's what I've seen, and here's what I think would look like to honor God in this area. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can argue that it is actually unloving to avoid these judgments or these conversations. Now, the, the hard thing about us when we use the word judge is that judge, judge and judgment is actually a neutral word. In our culture, we, it has all this negative connotation to it, but judging in and of itself is a neutral thing. And what Jesus is saying is, is how or why you're doing it can make it a positive or a negative, right? And, and not speaking in these, in these, into these situations can it be actually a way that we can avoid carrying one another's burdens. Like if you have a, a close friend who is struggling in an area and you see that, uh, a way to avoid carrying that burden is to speak in that situation. It actually would be unloving. It kind of reminds me, so when I was a kid, I was playing, uh, I was like probably 12 or 13 years old. Uh, example of this, I was pitching for my rec team. And you know your team isn't very good when I'm one of the better players. <laughs> and we were not very good. And so I was pitching, and we were losing, and, like, the teams kept getting hits. But the problem was, like, they would hit it right to our players, and, like, the third baseman would throw it to the first baseman, and he would drop the ball. Or, like, they hit it in the outfield, and it would, like, come right to and it would, like, go in between their legs. Like, I was getting frustrated. And so there was, like, some people on, and this guy pops it up. There was two outs to the shortstop. And if you play shortstop in Little League Baseball, it's typically because, like, you're the most athletic person on the team. And they pop it up to the shortstop, and I'm like, finally. And he drops it. And I was so mad, I took my mitt, and I slammed it on the pitcher's mound. I was so mad. And I don't remember all the conversations, but after the game, when we got home, my parents sat me down, and they talked to me about how this is not an appropriate way to act how these kids look up to you, um, how, how, how you make people feel. Like, yes, it's important to win, but like, and it was all these things. Now, here's the thing. My parents, it's not like they had never lost the temper themselves or they had never mistreated someone else. But because their concern here was to speak into a situation, it was easy to be received. Now, I hear, I get like a parent-child relationship. It's much easier to do this with your child than a friend or a peer. Like, I get it. But that's, it's, again, it's not about being perfect yourself. But it's about with love and concern, being honest about where you have fallen short, 
But having a humble and loving judgment on the situation actually can be a good thing. And in fact, also when you read the scriptures, here's another thing that we see, that it is not wrong to be judged. It's actually, I know in our culture today, it's like, don't judge me. But if we're followers of Jesus, what does the scripture say? Scriptures don't actually say it's wrong to be judged in and of itself. Now, of course, if someone is judging you hypocritically or they're trying to condemn you or they're trying to trap you, like, yes, that's wrong. But in, it just in general or in and of itself, it's not an actually thing wrong to be judged. Now, again, what happens, however, is that all of us, or maybe most of us might agree with what it said. Like, yeah, if I have a friend who's doing something that's unwise, it's loving for me to speak into that situation, and it's loving for me to say something. But here's what I also know. I also think it's easy for us to agree with it, but then always just assume whenever somebody does it to us that they're judging us in a negative way. So part of this, if you're a follower of Jesus, is being willing to hear corrections from people around you. Being willing, even if they don't say it in the best way or in the best manner, or maybe they've got, but even willing to say, I'm going to hear what they actually have to say, right? It, it, that, that, I think that's part of the wisdom for us. And another thing, again, that's worth understanding is because when we read Matthew 1, 7, 1 on itself, it seems to be, if, it's, if it was a bullet point verse without any context, it would be like, yeah, I shouldn't judge. But in context, um, it, we think, we think we should never judge people. And also, if I don't judge people, then I will never be judged. So I'll be good. But we need to know, again, that Scripture is clear that God will judge us. Like, God will judge us. This is not like, Jesus is not speaking about how God views us in this situation. He's speaking about how we interact with other people. So really quickly, in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter, uh, there's a lot of places I'll do. I'll just do two really quick. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking, he's a Jew, and he's talking to his fellow Jews about some missionary journey stuff, where all these Gentiles, all these non-ethnic religious Jewish people are coming to know Jesus. And people are like really concerned about like, why are you doing this? Why are you not eating kosher? All these things. And here's what he says. He says, he, talking about Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That Jesus is not just the judge, the, the savior and the one who's going to judge the Jewish people, but that he is the savior of the world of which all people will fall under his judgment. And so all people need to know about who he is and his love. Or in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He says this, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. But what we see happening here is that Christ will return and he will judge that we will judge. And so therefore, we are encouraged to spread the gospel so that people know his grace and that people may repent from their sins and turn to him. Or again, put another way, that all of us will be judged. Matthew 7, 1 is not saying that if you don't judge anyone else, they can't judge you and God also won't judge you. Right? What, is, what we need to know is that we will actually be judged. And so if you were to put in context, uh, here is how I would phrase what I think Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 7 as a whole, but particularly in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. That Matthew 7, 1 is not a prohibition against discerning right from wrong. It's a warning against hypocritical condemnation. It is not a prohibition against looking and rightly seeing things and making accurate judgments on situations of what's going on, but it's a warning against doing so hypocritically and in an effort to condemn those people. That would actually be the problem. Now, again, what's interesting or what's worth knowing, because all this is said in context, 
right? Jesus, a few verses later in his sermon, then tells us the golden rule, which is what? He says it this way in Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is just a really quick shorthand way of saying this is what the scriptures are saying, right? To love other people and to treat them with kindness and respect. And so, of course, judging people is one of the biggest ways we can do this or one of the biggest ways we could do this wrongly, right? We should judge people the way that we would want them to judge us because we want to treat people the way they want, we want them to treat us, right? And so, again, the golden rule is based on love for others, Right? To not hypocritically condemn other people requires a disposition of love for others, which best comes from following a God who has a disposition of love for you. This is why we do that. Again, Matthew 7.1 is not a prohibition against discerning right from wrong. It's a warning against hypocritical condemnation. And here, here, here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that God is a righteous judge and that he will judge all things, but that he's also gracious and loving and kind, that he came in the form of a man named Jesus to take on the sins of us so that he can forgive us and give us grace and give us mercy and make it possible for us to enter into his perfect kingdom. Because when it, when it comes to judgment, here, here's what I know, right? Don't we all long for a good judge? Don't we all long for a good judge? Is there anything more infuriating uh, than reading and hearing about people who avoided any penalty for a grievous wrong because of a loophole in our justice system? Like someone who like scanned millions of people who, uh, who needed welfare, needed assistance, because, and then they get out. We all know they're guilty, but there was this thing like, and it makes us wrong. Like this isn't fair. Or like for me, and I, but as I say this, listen, I'm not a legal person. I'm not saying they don't deserve trials, whatever. But it's just personally, it's still frustrating when you have someone who maybe is on trial for like a mass shooting. And it's like a six months and they're trying to sentence this person and we all know that they did it. And you think about how backed up our, our justice system is and the judges and the lawyers and how much hundreds of thousands of dollars is being spent on this person for however many life sentences they're going to get. Like we all know that they did it. And so it's frustrating to see that. Or on the flip side, it's also devastating to hear about when someone is released from jail who's been there for decades because of new DNA evidence or because someone admitted that they lied under oath. Like we see that stuff and we think, man, this is not fair. But our God is a God who is actually just. That what we have done and what others have done to us will actually be accounted for. And he is giving us the ability to stand before him as righteous and holy and pure. Not because we tried really hard, but because God gave his life for us. And so my hope for us, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus, that we would be a people who are honest with our shortcomings, and we are loving and gracious to the shortcomings of others. It's not that we don't have convictions. It's not that we don't speak into situations. But when we do so, it's because we care for them and we love them, not to pull one over on them and not to try to condemn them. Again, this is not a call against speaking out against evil or wrongdoing or sin, but to do so with love and humility to do so with love and humility. And so really, if I could just real quick, as I end, give you a, one practical way that, that helps me at least try to live this out, at least try to allow me to not be hypocritical condemnation or co uh, condemn people. One of the things, I've, I've done this for a couple years now, every single night, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures is a story that Jesus shares where you have the religious leader and the tax collector, which so you, the person who does all the right things, and then that culture, like the worst of the worst. Um, they go to the temple to pray, and the religious leader says all the things that he's done, that he's given, and that he prays, and then he fasts. And here's the thing. All the things that the religious leader says that he has done is true. 
He's done those things. And then you have this tax collector, the worst of the worst. Maybe in our culture, people who fraud, who fraud people, who lied about people or, or stole from people, right? He goes to the temple and he beats his chest. And all he says is, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus shares the story and asks, who do you think left justified? The righteous person who does all the right things or the sinner who was honest about their brokenness and their need for forgiveness? It was the sinner. And so every night, it's this weird ritual I have. As I get into bed, I, I, my phone is typically off and downstairs, so I have a little manual alarm clock. And so I'm a little like OCD about checking the time, make sure that my alarm's going to go off. And so I like press it five times and turn the blue light on so I can see it. And as I'm laying in the bed, I say this to myself. I say this not to, to the Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Every night. It is the last thing I, I pray before I go to bed and lay there and my mind races for you know, another hour. The last thing I intentionally think about I get in bed, I say, Lord, have mercy, because I need it. And it's not like a, trying to say this to sound, like I need it, that I have fallen short. Sometimes I see it, sometimes I don't. And if God's going to have mercy on me, would I have mercy on other people? Again, Matthew 7 is not a prohibition against discerning right from wrong. It is a, it's a warning, it's, it's a warning against hypocritical condemnation. And when we remember all that God has done for us, how he has loved us, how he has forgiven us, may it encourage us to do the same for others. We have a God who loves us, who cares, who will one day right every wrong, who is inviting us to give him our shame, to give him our brokenness. And as we turn to him, it's not that we try really hard or that we never screw up or that we never sin, but we have a God who has rescued us from darkness because of his death and his resurrection. Again, Matthew 7 is not a prohibition against discerning right from wrong. And it's a warning against hypocritical condemnation. And would that not be so in us?